1: All right. Hello. Welcome to POV or My Therapist, the podcast where I vent, you listen, and you do not get paid. Today, my guest is Raquel Willis. This lady has so many ampersands in her title author, mm-hmm. memoirist, mm-hmm. Mm, <laughs> activist, trans liberator, black rights activist. <sighs> Welcome, Raquel. Thank you. And author, <laughs> I already said that, but author of an upcoming memoir yes. called The Risk It Takes to Bloom. As mm-hmm. you can see, I'm knee deep in this book. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I, upon reading this and like by the time I got a quarter of the way through, you have such an ability to, oh, oh don't be scared now. <laughs> don't be scared (laughs) but you have such an ability to really make people understand your mindset Mm. and i think like as somebody who's writing about their trans experience that's so important Mm -hmm. because i feel like a lot of people have the misconception that people just wake up one day and they're like oh i want to transition or oh i'm gay but I think you do a really good job at taking a step by step and to seeing where your mind was at, the experiences that one validated you, the moments that made you really think about your gender identity. Mm-hmm. And I see those places all throughout the book, which is why I can't skim. Right. I Cause, got you. Yeah, because every time <laughs> I try to skim, I dive deeper in the book. And I'm like, damn, this is such a good piece. And then I feel bad because I'm skimming. And I'm like, no. But <laughs> while you were writing the book, mm-hmm. was it difficult to like tap into that part of your youth that was really confusing?
2: <sighs> <sighs> um.
1: Well, you know what's
2: interesting? It wasn't, which is why I'm glad I wrote it at this point. Mm. I'm glad I wrote it like 29 going into 30, because it really started in earnest in 2020, like mm-hmm. that book writing process. And by then, I just had so much distance. You know, I think as a trans woman, there's for a long time been this feeling, at least for me and I think a lot of other trans folks, like, I don't want to talk about growing up, I don't want to talk about pre-transition because then you kind of feel like people are going to weaponize that against you or say, oh, see, you didn't start your medical transition till you were 20. So you don't know anything about womanhood. Like that was the world at least 10 years ago. And it it still can be that way sometimes, but maybe not as much anymore. Mm -hmm. But I definitely had a lot of baggage Wanted to kind of shield myself from being chipped away at, especially my womanhood. So, I'm so all that to say, I think now is the perfect time. Like, I'm on the other side of 30. Like, you can't tell me shit. Like, (laughs) it is what it is. Like, I got to be able to embody authenticity, vulnerability in a different way now, because now people. In movement, see me as like an auntie, right? or a big sis oh, auntie too? well, I know, right? right. But it comes through <laughs> sometimes. And I just want to be able to, like, really be about it. Like, yes, I'm a trans woman. Like it is what it is. like, um, and I want them to be freed up to embrace themselves too. And they really are. I mean, I think Gen Z. And a lot of the younger folks, some of these trans teens I've been working on media projects with, they are so unapologetic. In a way, I definitely was that when, they, when I was their age.
1: Yeah, like mm-hmm. reading the book, it was so interesting because when you talk about a lot of your experience, like especially like in high school and then mm-hmm. first stepping into college, that little bit of freedom, I found myself relating to so much to it. Because in those ages there was just this discomfort in your body already and there was especially a line you said about like your um stubble and I was like girl me too (laughs) because I have PCOS and no way Mm, equating mm -hmm. that to your trans experience but I remember like being so uncomfortable in my body and it was so nice especially when you came out to your mom Mm -hmm. and reading those places were you ever afraid of like how your family as a whole would react when you went from being... Because I know you talk about your experience with your dad and how difficult that was.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: did you ever feel really hesitant to tell people that you were trans or about the journey you were heading down because of his experience and how different that was from being gay? Um, you know, I
2: think that... I think by the time I was like realizing that I was trans I kind it kind of was just like this is what it is like I've arrived Seriously. you know good um and the beauty of that was that I was 20 right 2021 20, um in college so I was away from home so I didn't really feel as beholden to, my family's expectations, or at least that was, like, slipping away. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm chronicling at that point in the journey. Um, I just couldn't imagine coming out about my gender any earlier than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was like, and you know this, right? This Mm -hmm. was, like, the late 2000s, right? Mm -hmm. This is, we're talking pre-Orange is the New Black, so... Laverne Cox is still in reality television, mind okay. you. We might have had, we had Isis King, which I talk mm-hmm. about a little bit on America's uh, Next Top Model, but, and Chaz Bono and like people like that. But the trans experience is still very fringe. I mean, the gay experience is still very fringe. I mean, this is also like around the time Glee is coming out. Mm-hmm. And um, remember, <laughs> I mean, remember when Glee came out in that pilot, how big of a deal it was that, like, Kurt was gay? gay?
1: Yes, I remember.
2: That was still so novel. And it was funny because I had been out for, like, two years in high school by that point, Mm -hmm. because I think that was, like, 2009. And so for me personally, it was like, okay, child, like, this isn't revolutionary. But for the world... That was still new to see a young person being openly gay.
1: That's crazy because I I did mm-hmm. not think about the timeline. I did mm-hmm. not think about the year. 2009 was just a lot. A lot. And you yeah. think about how media was just so vulgar, like in your mm-hmm. face and like unkind. And like the most pretentious way, the way they talked about women, pop stars and gay figures... You're right. That like, was the Britney year. The that was the Britney, Britney year. year. That's mm-hmm. the Britney year. And you know, so crazy, not to get off track, but right. I read a tweet that said that that week she was going to court for her kids mm-hmm. and they were going to drug test her hair. And that's why she And that's why it. she cut her hair. I don't know how true that is because I did see that on the bird app, but <laughs> that's, I read about that and it made me think about the lack of nuance that there was in the media to mm-hmm. even like think about that. And weirdly enough, I feel like the media is so much kinder to people now. Maybe because um, I I say that with a grain of salt. <laughs> I think people are more scared about getting canceled is what it is. So they're very That's careful right. about what they say in a space that exists forever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're any kinder. Well,
2: in general, right? Because, I mean, when I think about being trans now, you know, yes... I can sit here and have this conversation with you and I'm just like, and I can still be girl next door who just mm-hmm. happens to be trans, right? But even yeah. that is novel still.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, People don't have any idea. Like, I have so many friends who are Black trans women who lead entire organizations, right? Who, you know, are in school, like trying to get a degree or, you know, working at any other nonprofit, right? So... There's still this idea, or there's still this invisibility Mm -hmm. to Black trans life in particular. Mm -hmm. That we're just, there's this idea that we don't exist outside of these basic ass jokes or social media discourse Mm -hmm. or whatever kind of fringe
1: train of thought, you know? There's... A part of your book where you talk about I forget what organization you were working with, mm-hmm. but you it was when you met your first um sex worker and they were trans mm-hmm. and how you felt like kind of I wish I didn't have to do this. And I think what you did so beautifully in that moment was recognize like your own lack of knowledge in that moment, mm-hmm. as in and I love that the lady told you. You can't save everybody. Like, you're basically nobody's savior. And I think that's so true because, like, you people have this idea of what everybody looks like Mm -hmm. and what jobs trans people can do and what their lives are limited to and who they are. And I think, like, simply put, it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think your book does a really good job at talking about that because you take us through every step of your journey and where you're going. And You're just a girl living life. That's simply what it is. But people will look at you and want to equate you to this identity that they've made for you. Mm. Is that something that you still.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely do think that, you know, I. Part of what was so important about writing that chapter, Nobody's Savior, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you're talking about my homegirl, Tony Michelle Williams, another Black trans woman who is an ED, one of the EDs I was talking about of that organization now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that moment on the stroll, you know, what was important for me to learn in my organizing work was not only that I had had immense privilege to come from... You know, a two-parent household, right? My parents both had advanced degrees, taught in um, higher ed institutions, um, came from a solidly middle-class background, was always going to go to college. Like there was not really an alternative not to regardless of my identity, right? So I always felt like I was on that path and entitled to that in a way. Um But that is not the experience of the majority of the Black trans women that I know. Or even if they did have access to college at one point, that doesn't mean they were able to finish. Yeah. Right? So it was important for me, both in my organizing, but also in my media and writing career, to be clear about the fact that I have all of these privileges and also... I don't want to be the stand-in for the Black trans experience either. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want you to be like... I don't want you to use me as an example because we know people love to do that mm-hmm. when folks achieve a certain amount of visibility or access or success. Mm-hmm. When you're on the margins, people want you to become the representative for yeah, the community. The and the it's model like,
1: minority. no, honey. Right.
2: I don't... I'm not trying to do that. I actually want my work to make it easier for the next girl to come up, to not have to check off as many boxes as mm-hmm. I did, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's that been important. So... I think it's just we need to become best friends with nuance, Mm -hmm. use nuance as a way to just help us think more expansively about other people's experiences beyond the labels, right? Because when I tell you I'm a Black trans woman, that is literally all I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. That's not telling you my journey. That's not even really telling you what my transition was like, because Mm -hmm. there are so many different ways to transition, Right? That's not telling you where I come from. I'm a Southern girl.
1: Yeah. You know? Yes, <laughs> you are. And,
2: and as far as I know, the last major memoir about a Black trans woman from the South was Hiding My Candy by the Lady Chablis, who was in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil oh back God. in 94, I believe.
1: 1994. Oh, my God. hmm That's crazy.
2: And she passed, I think, in 2016, maybe, 17, somewhere in there. And so that was always important to me was that my work spoke to the Southern experience because now it is... It's sexy to be like, oh, we we got to make sure the South is okay. You know, whether it's politically Girl, or, and you know this.
1: I know. You know, yeah. it
2: all hinges on Georgia. What was that? When the Stacey Abrams
1: election was happening. Yes, they were, they were counting on Georgia, child.
2: When John Ossoff and um, um, Warnock.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, when they were running. Yeah. It was like, it all hinges on Georgia. And I'm like, oh, y'all paying Georgia some money now?
1: You know what? I was actually (laughs) telling somebody yesterday that politically, I feel like if you got rid of all the gerrymandering, without a doubt, Georgia would Mm. be so democratic Mm. and so liberal. Because in my county, Henry County, in the year, I think- Outing yourself. I know. (laughs) But you know, I'm a seven girl living in a seven world. It's fine. (laughs) Like, I can't even hide it anymore. Like, I actually really like the South because mm. I'm, I, before I moved to Georgia, I lived in Massachusetts. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Your face>? Yeah. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. That's everything you need to know. <laughs> Literally, living in Massachusetts, the amount of like microaggressions mm-hmm. that you just experience every day, every day. And, I really like Georgia because you don't. You know where the racists are. They Mm -hmm. live together. They live in a little town and they love each other. Yeah. They don't love you, but they love each other. Mm -hmm. And you can avoid them because the minute you turn into their neighborhood, you know what you're going to see a Confederate flag. Yeah. And then you say, oh, let me pull a Yui. Mm -hmm. And then you go home. Like in my town, that was, I want to say, it's the fastest growing. Town in Georgia,
2: mm.
1: I think might it might be in all of the South. Okay, they went from in two years went from being Republican to Democrat, mm. and I mean across the board mm-hmm. from state legislation. To, I'm no, not sorry, not state legislation, why did I just lie? <laughs> from, like, countywide, from the people who do the schools to the mayor, all of it, Democratic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, you realize that people are Democratic, they just don't realize it. Yeah. They say, a thing. they complain about, like, I remember my mom is a nurse, or was a nurse, and she mm-hmm. used to work in the ICU, and she had this poor dad who his daughter was dying she was on her deathbed and she had been she, he couldn't take care of her and the hospital was the only way that he knew could take care of her or the only people with the means to they were trying to kick him out of the hospital because he had no money so she the nurse that he had was telling him if you sign up for obamacare your daughter can be and he's like, i don't want to hear nothing about obama yeah. yeah. Literally, like, that was just his wow. whole thing. Then they somebody said to my mom, she the nurse got so fed up, she was like, Merlon, deal with this. I can't. So she goes in there, and she's like, there's something called ACA. Yeah. Which is literally Obamacare. Mm-hmm. But because it was not Obamacare, he signed up for it, and he was able to take his daughter home and have a live-in nurse with her. And that's just my experience living in the South, because I know it hasn't always been that way. I know that for sure. But I think I would rather the racism live where it lives than having to meet a doctor who has microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Who, the minute he walks in the room, he's like, hey, girl. Right. Miss Diva. (laughs) Like some shit like that. (laughs) Or like having school teachers be like, Mm -hmm. your hair is a distraction. Hmm. or things like that. And, like, that's why I personally love this house.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I, go. I mean, it's so funny. Um, I grew up wanting to get so far, as people would say, out of Dodge.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um Because I felt like, For me to be my fullest self, Mm -hmm. knowing that I was different, didn't know I was queer or trans or anything, but just knew I was different and I was being bullied for it. I thought that that required moving somewhere else. And again, thinking about context in the 90s, I mean, yeah. everything you watched on TV, especially like Black media, like Living Single or Martin, or even like Family Matters was like in Chicago. You know, it, mm-hmm. things were set in like New York mm-hmm. or San Francisco in general. Like, that was it. Um, I mean, like, what. I, you didn't really see things set in the South. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, as someone who was always soaking up media, okay, I got to go somewhere else. And then when I learned that, like, hus- the historical gay meccas are, like, New York and San Francisco, that added a new layer.
1: Isn't it so crazy that now Atlanta is one of... is a mm-hmm. black gay mecca. Not only, like, just... Not only are there gays, but they're black. Yeah. Which is so... Like unheard of, mm-hmm. and I think like Atlanta on Atlanta. I don't like I don't like Atlanta for so many different reasons, okay. but I will give her her props. Why? Give us the reasons. First of all, <laughs> these are very silly reasons. Okay, but why are we pay six hundred dollars to go to the club and sit on a couch? Why are okay. we doing that. People why like to stunt? That's true. Why is the bottle of Casamigos sixty dollars? Mm. I need, actually, no, it's not. That's how much it is in the store for like a big one. Mm-hmm. At the club, it's like, what, $500? I just have an issue. I feel like it's a, and it's a very, okay, I can't. I'm going to try not to rant because I, I hate this. <laughs> it's a, it's an issue I've noticed in the last two years mm-hmm. after the pandemic. The food used to be good. Nightlife used to be good. I think people got very money hungry and there's a lot of socioeconomic, political reasons why, you know, we're in a position for—I think when you don't have money, when you don't have opportunity to make money through normal routes, you almost—and then there are people in your face telling you you're just not hustling hard enough, mm-hmm. that you need to get your grind on, you need to make a side hustle. When you're bombarded by that shit, you lose a little bit of morality and you start opening these random fucking hookah bars <laughs> these last couple of years. is There's so many new restaurants, so many new things, but mm. the quality's not there. Because like a lot of people are just trying to make a quick buck. And oh. I'm not the only one with this issue. Have you ever been on um, Atlanta restaurant TikTok? No. Oh, girl. His business is businesses getting closed down? Left and right? Left and right. Wow.
2: I mean... I miss Atlanta a lot. Like, I miss really? the South. I think I would move back to Atlanta. You should move back to Atlanta. Um, well, according to you, I should have. I but... mean,
1: the outskirts of Atlanta. <clears throat> okay. Not Atlanta, Atlanta. Selfish but, reasons here.
2: But, you know, it's wild for me to think about now, because I'm 32 now, mm-hmm. to think, I was running them streets in Atlanta <laughs> in my early 20s. Which I'm actually so glad that I got to like mm. just be, you know, a wild twenty-something, and I wasn't visible. Mm. You know, like, you know, I had like some followers on Twitter at that point, but I wasn't visible in the way I am now. Oh,
1: so you, could... so I was
2: able to, so you was okay. float float under the radar. Oh. So I was out here.
1: Oh, period. We love a thought era. Yeah, but it
2: was also a different time, mm-hmm. and I think. You know, I was very out as gay Mm -hmm. in school and, like, high school and then going into college from, like, 14. And then I came out as trans Mm -hmm. around 2021. Mm -hmm. And then I was out as that until I graduated. 2021? No, 20 slash 21. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: My brain. Ages, ages. No, no, no.
2: Okay, so I graduated from the University of Georgia in 2013. Okay, yes. So it's been... I, this has been 10 minute. years. It's been, yeah. Um, but when I graduated and I, you know, and this is a part of the book, I was like, I don't know what the rest of my life is going to look like. Am I going to be out at work? Mm. And then when I realized that I was not going to be able to find a job in New York because I was trying, but I didn't have an address here. No one was taking my application seriously. I found my first job in Monroe, Georgia as a newspaper reporter and be I had to be stealth there, right? So like mm. go in the closet, was not out as queer or trans. Wow. And I think after that experience and then moving to Atlanta about a year and a half later, there was such a desire for me to... Just experience oh. a part of my 20s just, like, not having to think about my identity all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I share that in the book, and I share this situation with this guy where it's always a guy. I didn't disclose <laughs> to him at first oh my um, that I was trans. But then we, we had the discussion. Nothing happened before we had the discussion. But... Um, I shared that because I wanted to be vulnerable about the fact that, like, especially in Black community, mm. what I would always see when Black trans women, women were murdered is, oh, she must have tricked them, mm. right? Or why wouldn't you tell somebody? Or there's, there's this entitlement that people have to mm-hmm. our identities when they think that cis men's masculinity or identities are on the chopping block or maybe called into question any other time, people don't want us to talk about our transness. Wow. Makes them uncomfortable. Mm. But when we're talking about desire or we're talking about um, hookup culture or dating or whatever, people feel so entitled to our identities in a way that they don't feel entitled to other aspects of people's lives. So one of the points I make in that chapter with that guy who was feeling away but then was like ultimately okay was like, you feel so entitled to my identity because we're meeting randomly, first of all. Mm -hmm. You didn't care about, you know, what my STD status was since you assumed something physical was going to happen. You didn't care about... So many different aspects of who I am as a person, but you're going to hang your hat on my transness Mm -hmm. because you think you being attracted to me and not understanding that is a problem. And you think that I'm threatening your masculinity or your your heterosexuality which is all kind of tied up together.
1: So these days, how do you go about that? Like mm-hmm. I don't know
2: your relationship status.
1: <laughs> but like yeah. if you are you single?
2: I am single. I mean, you know,
1: I'm ready to I'm go. dating.
2: Okay. okay, dating. We have a few prospects. We'll see who wins.
1: Oh, we're building the roster. Yes. <laughs> Period. Period. Yeah. So how do you go about that? Like mm-hmm. when you're dating, is this obviously you have a memoir coming out. And to be mm-hmm. honest, if I were you, I would literally just throw the book at that. Literally throw the book at them. Yeah. And be like, read up, honey. Like catch up. And we're hoping they'll be able
2: to get through it. But that's oh, a whole nother thing. They're
1: going to get through it. <laughs> they're gonna because it's good writing it well, really thank you. i don't know why you look so skeptic every time i say <laughs> that it is good writing thank you because it's transformative in so many ways and i mean like the words itself on the page mm-hmm. i think people i think honestly people who have trans children who might not understand this would be a good book to read i feel like it puts them in very simple terms that i am just a person
2: yeah figuring
1: out myself And it doesn't change who you are at your core. Mm -hmm. There's so much that like looking as an outsider at black masculinity Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and having to date within black masculinity and like deal with like my, I don't know my dad or I don't know him, but I do know his best friend Mm -hmm. who because of my father's shortcomings, has, this man doesn't show up for anybody, but he will show up for me. Yeah. And that is the only positive aspect of masculinity that I have to, like, grasp onto. Mm-hmm. And seeing, like, your experience with a father who was very loving. Yeah. Who was, and, but still, the only time that you really felt that you could step, us like, not really care about how, your masculinity was seen in his eyes was when, when he, he was... Da- yeah, yeah, it was when he passed. Like, that's such, that's such a shame because okay. they didn't get to know you in your full bloom. Yeah. These days, when you think about that, do you ever wonder how your relationship with your dad would be like now? Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, I've had so many times over the last several years where I've been like, well, my dad even recognized me on the street if, we, if he was like beamed back to earth and we passed each other. Um, would he have been able to evolve like the rest of my family? Would my family have evolved, right? Because also in our families, often so much of the affirmation or the acceptance mm-hmm. comes from the example set by... The patriarch or the matriarch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't set that example, that can have devastating effects, effects on your relationships with everyone else mm-hmm. in your family. So I do think about that a lot. I and I like to give him grace. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, he passed in twenty eleven, so it's been twelve years. Mm-hmm. And I've clearly changed a lot in twelve years. So i the way that I make it through is trying to give him grace that he would have evolved to. You know. um, and I think what I most hope people take away from my discussion about my relationship with him, Was, to your point, I mean, he was a loving father, right? And he was present. He was everything that, you know, people claim Black men and Black fathers aren't and can't be, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of his love was corrective because it was about protection. Mm -hmm. Because he knew what space was there for me as at that time, someone being raised as a young black boy Mm -hmm. to deviate from respectability. Mm -hmm. And I have this chapter in there called For Women Who Had a Boyhood because... That's so funny. That's another thing too, though, right? Is that as a trans woman, it has been a journey for me to get to a point where I can share about my boyhood. Mm -hmm. Even though... I never felt at home in that space of being seen as a boy. That's how I was raised, right? And so it feels early, and I don't know where that conversation goes, but there is a discourse to have that, like, there is a shared boyhood, right? That I think Black trans women, many of us, share with, like, Black cis men Mm -hmm. of all stripes, right?
1: Yeah.
2: So... It's always interesting when you know so you don't see it as much now but there was like a point online where anytime people would talk about black women or black trans women in particular experiencing violence or being murdered people would want to reorient the conversation around Black men, right? Or black men and boys, which is an important conversation, right? But it's not the only conversation. And I think it's also interesting, too, and I talk about this later in the book, because there's so much mourning throughout the book.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And some of that is personal, just with my father. Mm -hmm. But some of it is like mourning... Young trans teens who died by suicide, right? Or mourning black people who were killed by the state, right? Mm-hmm. Or mourning black trans women who were killed by men in our communities. yeah, but that mourning for me is all tied together. So I can't separate it out. So it's particularly hurtful for me when there are black cis people who are like who don't care about Black trans life. Or there are Black cis het people who don't care about Black queer lives, right? Who don't care about the Shea siblings, Mm -hmm. right? Because I don't have a choice but to care about Mm -hmm. all of our lives Mm -hmm. because I see the interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. I see how broken our community is by these white supremacist concepts of respectability of gender.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was going to be the next thing that I mm-hmm. asked to actually, was I know all the time, and it's always like my white friends, well, they're not my friends, just people Ooh, I on They look. can be your friends. Uh, but, you know, they, they always talk about like fatigue, mm-hmm. experiencing these kinds of fatigue. Yeah. And I think what you just said really goes hand in hand, you can't experience fatigue Mm -hmm. because if it's not your skin, it's your gender. If it's not your gender, it's your life experience. And all of that is always hanging on by a thread because there's always somebody trying to take away your rights. Mm -hmm. And I always get so confused, especially when women, especially when black women are transphobic. Because I'm like, girl! They're trying, I'm like, girl, wake up. Like, they trying to fuck all of us over. What Mm -hmm. do you mean? And it's crazy. Funny enough, I was watching this morning, The Vice. It was a long time ago. I know. Someone recognized me from that
2: yesterday. Really? On the elevator at this building. They were like, were you in The Vice interview? And I was like, yes.
1: That's such good memory.
2: Eyes crossed and everything. (laughs)
1: Yes. Listen, I (laughs) I I watched it this morning and I was like, Lord, because there's another person on the panel who is also a trans woman and they have white. Yes. Trans woman. That's a very important conservative. Yeah.
2: Trans woman, allegedly. Which you know. I it can be for show. I that's I feel like for a lot of conservative talking heads. Yes, talking it's yes. acting for them, honey.
1: You know, I don't even know because I my childhood friend one day. <laughs> well, we're not friends anymore, but one day she just popped out with a MAGA hat. Oh. She black child. That was the most confusing thing. It was subversive. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and knowing her mm-hmm. before she made that decision. I know that she would never agree with me if I said it. But knowing her and having had countless sleepovers, talking about our deep, dark fears and crying and sliding down the wall, throwing up, all of it, I know that her need for this conservative life, this married to a MAGA pro, all of it.
2: So she's like a reverse Jenny and Clarence Thomas. Yes.
1: Okay, that took me a minute. To I think. know, sorry. I had to think. Yeah, yeah. I had there to, were layers. There. I had I had to go through the Rolodex of okay, what do these people look like? But knowing her, <laughs> no, I know that like it stems from a place of not accepting the self, mm-hmm. and experiencing the whole time I was watching that, and that every time that lady opened her mouth, I was like, "You want?" There are people who want to just remove themselves from their experience, mm-hmm. and they have such a hard time. And I think so much spite towards, I feel like she had a lot of spite that she was not born assigned female. Mm. That's what I felt like. And I, yeah, that's real. And I felt like that spite translated into, she needed, and I don't know, psychological terms are nothing, but (laughs) she needed to, I don't know. I felt like she was judging herself before anybody judged her. And that's why she pivoted a lot of her aggression towards Jamie. I don't know if you remember. But they were non-binary. Yes. Yes. And there was, I was like, damn, you a grown-ass lady. You picking on somebody. But, you know, that's, it's
2: so good you bring that up. Because there have been discussions within trans community over the last... At least a year. I mean, and these aren't new, but it's been happening more on social media, particularly of trans women who, you know, are cis assumed in their everyday life, like, don't have to be out. Mm -hmm. um, Saying that, oh, well, non-binary people are making it harder for me because people see you. And they're, then they're confused about what I am. And I'm like, honey, that's exactly like cis women yeah. who say that trans women are making it harder for people to know who, who women are. And it's like, that is such a foreign idea to me because, for one, and to to your point a second ago, and I've never really thought about this, but I've never had this desire... I won't say that. I think as a kid, I definitely was like, I wish I had, I was just born a girl, or I wish I could just wake up and be a girl. Like, I definitely had those thoughts as a kid. And I talk about that in the book. But I think by the time I realized my transness had language and tools to identify what had been going on, I didn't, I don't see my trans experience as lesser. Mm -hmm. That is foreign to me. I actually see transness as brilliant and beautiful and powerful because I really had to be about this shit
1: Yeah, to
2: show up authentically in this life, mm-hmm. to grab my life and own it and claim it and say, this is the life I actually want. This is the life I actually deserve. And I think a lot of cis people could learn a lot from that because as much as people like to say that trans people are confused about who we are and going through some things, honey, cis people are in a gender crisis. (laughs) Cis people are online day in and day out complaining about, oh, am I the woman in the relationship or the man in the relationship? Complaining about their children liking things that they shouldn't because of their certain gender or being raised as a certain Mm -hmm. gender, let's be clear. Having gender reveals that are causing wildfires. I literally was about to say
1: wildfires.
2: This obsession with gender that cis people claim that trans people have is actually a projection. The thing for me is that I just want more more cis folks to just listen, yeah. to listen, to learn, to commit to unpacking mm-hmm. your trauma because inevitably you have some trauma around. The cis hetero patriarchy, just like you do around white supremacy, Mm -hmm. and maybe whatever else.
1: Earlier, you talked about for Mm -hmm. women who had a boyhood. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask
2: you was
1: because you transitioned later in life,
2: and (laughs) that it's so funny to me to think that
1: later in life, twenty and twenty-one was
2: later in life. That's crazy because (laughs) I felt like that. No, but no lie, I felt like that when I was starting my transition 12 years ago. That was because that, all the literature was like, the yeah. further you get away from your teenage mm-hmm. years, the less changes you're going to have. And then, of course, everything was about being able to blend in, mm-hmm. passing, as we would mm-hmm. we said then, cis-assume, su- being cis-assumed mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. what we say now. Another mouthful. We love our words. But, <laughs> um, but it works for now. So I did feel like I was late. And I had been through my first puberty, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't have access to puberty blockers. But the funny thing is, we're talking about 2011, 2012. Virtually no one was transitioning in their teenage years Mm -hmm. at that time. Of course, there were a few people, Mm -hmm. right? And some of them we knew in media. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think about it, like a Kim Petras or... Mm -hmm. Um, I think like Nicole Maines, who's an actress, but that was not common. Mm. And so actually most of the narratives were trans women who transitioned in their senior years or a little bit later, right? Yeah. So it's funny to look back now because when I look back now, I'm like, oh, actually that was very young. And that's the interesting thing about the trans community Yeah, is that when we think about age... And we think about there's there's just different layers of how we think about maturity and age, because um, you could be forty, but if you came out as trans and started living your life openly, y- like last m- month or last year, that's a diff- You're at a different space and stage mm-hmm. than, for instance, me and like a bunch of my homegirls, which many of us started our transitions in our early twenties, right? Are in our late teen years and by late teens meaning like 19 Mm -hmm. when we left the house Mm -hmm. you know um anyway so that's my long like kind of thing but it's like you you said later in life that later in life was crazy
1: on my part it's (laughs) funny
2: it's funny because I felt that right and I there is a different kind of security and confidence I have now where it's like, oh, I've lived like a huge chunk of my life as my true self. Mm -hmm. And I think that distance from that earlier part of my transition makes me feel less like anybody can say shit to me. Like you can't say shit to me because the bulk of my adulthood minus maybe two or three years was me moving through the world as a woman. So for you to tell me I don't know what misogyny is, mm. or whatever, honey, I'm gonna go out walk walk on the street
1: mm. and have the same and experience give you the you. same.
2: I'll give you the crash yeah. course, honey, because I experienced. I've experienced it.
1: So do you think <laughs> if if you had had access to, mm-hmm. I don't know what the kids were reading like in those days, but that was like, pre Janet Mock. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, okay, I I was going to bring this up later, but Mm -hmm. the first, and I wanted to ask you this too, was the first time that I ever heard the word trans woman Mm. or transgender was Janet Mock's article in In Marie Marie Claire. Claire. Mm -hmm. And I must have been in like eighth grade. And I- Wait, how old are you? I'm 28. Okay. People okay. think I'm 19. <clears throat> well, because I was in college,
2: like trying to figure out how I was going to get a job after I graduated. So it's so when that to article say that. came yeah, out, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, and I was in journalism school, so that when oh. I read that article, it was so revelatory for me mm-hmm. to see this black trans woman who had navigated yeah. this career in journalism, yes. and I was like, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, that is possible. You know, and also, I mean, the, the thing about her story was mm-hmm. having to be stealth to survive, right? Mm-hmm. And I experienced, like, a tad bit of that. But the, the cool thing is, like, because of people like her and Laverne Cox and Gina Rosero, and Carmen Carrera, mm-hmm. it wasn't so impossible mm-hmm. for me to tiptoe out of the stealth closet and have a career where i could be openly myself.
1: Yeah. If you had had access to that Janet Mock article when mm-hmm. you were like 8, 9 or something similar and you had a you knew you could get access to like um hormone blockers what have you. Do you think you would have transitioned earlier? Would you have wanted to transition earlier or do you think that it happened at a very good space and time?
2: Well, I, I always, I'm a I'm a no regrets kind of bitch, right? Seriously. So everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I, my mom and I, we, we talk about this every now and then. And we were talking about this a few weeks ago. And she, we were just like on the phone and just talking about how, because she says this often, she's like, Your life is just so beautiful. Like she's like, you're happy, right? Because like you seem happy, but like I want to make sure.
1: You seem very happy, by the
2: way. Thank
1: you. I
2: am. I mean, I I feel very fulfilled. So I everything has landed the way it needed to land. I don't know if which is weird to say as someone who works in media, if media would have been enough Mm. for me to understand my gender, even if it happened earlier. Because so much of me understanding transness was, I'm the type of bitch who also got to see it in person. Mm -hmm. Right? And so meeting trans people in college. Yeah. That combo with...
1: And Rebel DeVoe.
2: Rebel DeVoe. That combo with Drag performance, Rebel DeVoe, former drag name, and and the media aspect, mm. and learning about systems of oppression in women's studies mm. courses, gender studies now. Them
1: gender studies courses will do it.
2: Obviously. All of that, that little gumbo, that was my gumbo of awakening. Yeah. So I don't know what would have happened without even one of those yeah. ingredients. Because in, in Augusta, Georgia, like, I didn't even have access to many openly queer people.
1: There's one thing I love about your book, and that was such a breath of fresh air, is your mom. Mm-hmm. It was so nice. Because I know, in even in high school, the thing you just said about waves, I was thinking about one of the very first gay people that I knew mm-hmm. and how his mom was really his safety mm-hmm. because his father was very anti which anytime anybody's too anti something I'm like I know something you don't <laughs> like <laughs> I know something you don't cuz if you're if you're secure in your shit you're mm-hmm. not going to care you're really not going to care but yeah. your mom has been such a place of peace for Mm -hmm. you how i i mean i think anybody can tell but how how have you felt how much easier do you think it's made your journey having somebody like that in your life
2: oh so much more i think a core a core part of my conviction about my womanhood is that my mama upset me. You know, so it's like, you know, people always have these ways that they often try to like chip away at trans people's identities. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, well, what do your your family think? What does your parents think? You know, is that what your mama call you? Actually, yes. Mm-hmm. That is what my mother calls me. Right. And she was in on the process of me choosing my name. I feel very blessed, very privileged to have. That support because I don't I don't know who I would be without it. So if anybody tries to come at me, I'm like, if my mama can accept me, you know, since you want to care about wombs and all this, well, the one that i the woman who has the one that I came out of accepts me. Mm-hmm. So why can't you? Yeah.
1: I love that. It makes me really... That was one of the... I let out such a huge sigh when I read that you came out to your mom and she was accepting and she helped you. And mm-hmm. it wasn't that she was just accepting, but she was integral in the process. Oh,
2: she was eager. She was a little eager beaver. Because <laughs> she... And part of it was... I I strategized with that, too. I, I didn't get to go into too much detail at that point in the book, but... I knew if I was questioning my gender and how I was going to move and navigate through the rest of my life, I needed to bring her into the fold sooner rather than later. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So when I was like questioning, okay, am I going to embark on this transition or not? I knew she had to be there at that point in the process, not later. Because I kind of learned my lesson when I was a teenager mm-hmm. that, like, I didn't want to wait too late
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and and have her feel like I hadn't been yeah. as forthcoming. We had been through so much by that point already mm-hmm. anyway. I mean, my dad had passed. Your grandma. I'd seen my grandma. I had seen her at her lowest. Mm-hmm. So I think that there was an opening there. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that, yeah, we went through it together mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: so now that you're you've bloomed i love the time well we're always blooming but you know in a way
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> are there because one of my major things and mm-hmm. like my therapy journey all of that is healing the inner child and i always mm-hmm. love talking about the inner child you now in your 30s on the other side of things are there things that you're doing to heal parts you're already shaking your head yes (laughs) (laughs) to heal the experience that you didn't have
2: Mm -hmm. as a child um the funny thing is i got a new therapist during the process of this book really and it's been so necessary, so revelatory. They hold me accountable in ways I didn't think therapists did. did. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're, if your therapist doesn't piss you off yeah, every other session, mm-hmm. you might need a new one.
1: Yeah. Because it, it's... I don't like agreeable therapists. No. I think they're not I, doing their job. And
2: I thought that those were mm-hmm. the good ones. I mean, and no sh- shade. <laughs> No shade, right? You agree with me. I love you. But I think I needed a therapist who could completely see through my bullshit. Because, honey, I can charm you. Yeah. You know, and some people are charmers, right? And, like, yes. And, yes, I'm endearing. But this current therapist knows, oh, but there's something underneath that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this desire to smooth everything over mm-hmm. comes from some yeah. stuff. So now, I think in going back and looking at family and my childhood and also friendships and how I navigated that, I mean, I had to have a lot of conversations with people about things I had written, you know, like oh, former partners, you know. Oh my God. Talking to family members that we had little, like... That sounds like my personal health. Tiffs and riffs, you know? Oh, my God. So there was some healing there, but I think... The journey that I'm on that is beyond that book is now... It And this is why I say I think we consistently bloom. It's a different kind of blooming that's happening now mm-hmm. because intimacy mm-hmm. is something that I really feel like I just started tapping into in a different way in this book, you know? Um, and I want to tap into more in future works. But with family, like as close as my family and I are, um, I think what I noticed was And I talk about this in the book. So much of my life was about, up until this point, was about trying to overcompensate for the ways that I wouldn't have a typical life Mm -hmm. or a palatable life. So it was always like, okay, I'm queer, I'm trans. But I can still do all these other things.
1: Mm.
2: You know? Mm -hmm. I can still be successful.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: I can still be intelligent. I can still have all the right words. I can still find love. I can still make a family that looks like all the other ones. And it's like, honey. That's exhausting. That is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And why is it like... A despite yeah, these things that make you so brilliant and unique and beautiful and engaging. So so what is it right? Like what are the what expectations? Right. Mm-hmm. What do you have to prove? Who are you trying to prove it to? Mm-hmm. You say you you've shattered all these expectations, but honey, you just holding on to mm-hmm. some other ones. Oh and I think that that is the universal thing that people who are not trans, people who are not queer, people who aren't even black, right, mm-hmm. can take away from this book mm-hmm. and take away from our voices, you know? Yeah black queer and trans people's voices
1: so my last question Mm -hmm. what was your favorite part about writing this memoir (laughs) my favorite part of writing the memoir
2: um finishing it no Uh, I mean that (laughs) was I was in a sprint like get through some editing. I was like, you know what? It's gonna take me like another few hours. I could just keep going, but I could also just take a nap. I went to sleep and then I had a dream. Um, My family and I were like getting ready for some event. It was like my mom, my sister, we were like backstage. Um, it was kind of funny because I had, like, I didn't have shoes on. So I don't know what that symbolism was. And then Oprah was there, and oh, it was like we were taking good. a photo, and they were like, well, it was Oprah and Gail. And they were. And Gail. And Gail, of course. <laughs> and. We ran to get my shoes because my sister was like, girl, why you ain't got your shoes on? So ran (laughs) to get my shoes, ran back, got the photo. Then I called my family in with my little nibblings to get in the photo too.
1: Nibblings.
2: Cute moment. This was such a vivid dream. Then after that moment, we were backstage at at some show. I, I don't know if I was like getting ready to speak or something, but my family was there. I look over to the... To another random stage that's, like, in the back that only I can see. Mm -hmm. My grandma is on that stage. And she looks young. And she's, like, wearing this, like, 1950s dress with this, like, big bow in the back. And it's, like, chartreuse. And her hair is done up. And she's just smiling widely and, like waving to the crowd, living her best life. And I saw my dad, and he's, like, walking over. Um, but I'm the only one that can see them. So I'm very aware mm-hmm. that they're not, like, alive again. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm basically seeing ghosts. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Dad, tell me what to tell Mama. Because I, I have this feeling that, like, something this is going to disappear in a second. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I knew it was a dream, but it felt like that. And he was like, just tell her that she... Can do whatever she wants. Just noticed he looked a little weary, and I was like, gr- I think I like grabbed his arm, and I was like, "You have to heal, Dad. You have to heal for the for the men in our line." Wow. Um, basically, because like, honey, I can't do it, cause honey, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but that that dream was so vivid, and it happened at the end of this process, mm-hmm. and then. Everything went black and it was just like flowers were just like raining down or something. I don't know. And then I woke up and I was like crying. And I was like, that is the most beautiful dream I've ever had, heard or I've ever experienced. And my takeaway was just like, whatever happens, it'll be beautiful about finishing this book. So that was probably my favorite moment. One of my favorite moments for sure.
1: That was so lovely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Raquel. Yeah. So tell the girls, tell the girls where, please excuse all of my tabs. You can get
2: The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation available wherever you get your books on November 14th, 2023. Definitely support Black-owned bookshops. Yes women-owned bookshops, queer and trans-owned bookshops. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having me.